0: Welcome to the podcast Inspirational Minds. This is episode one of our first season, which we have called Scandinavian Leadership and Ideas. In this podcast, we are all about spreading inspirational ideas from interesting people who have lived their lives a little bit different than most people. We want to give you an inspiration of ideas and philosophies so you can maybe get new insight from what we call Inspirational Minds. In the first season, we have traveled all around Scandinavia to give you the most exciting guests and the most exciting and inspirational ideas from people who have done remarkable things, not only for themselves, but for the greater good and others as well. So, welcome to the podcast and to our first guest. Our guest on the podcast today is Morten Albeck. He is a 43-year-old Dane. And have had a very interesting career, not only in business, but he's also actually a philosopher. And he has written four books and is frequently on the bestseller lists uh, in Denmark. He is named five times by the Internationalist as one of the hundred most influential people in the world when it comes to marketing. He started out his business career in Danske Bank, Denmark's largest financial institution where he worked his way up to be senior vice president of idea generation and innovation. And in 2009, he became senior vice president for global marketing, communication, and corporate relations investors, which is the largest windmill turbine producer in the world. And in 2015, he went on his own and founded with partners a company called Voluntas, which is an investment and adversary company but with a twist, one of the demands from Voluntas to get them to invest in your company is that in addition to make money, you also need to make a social impact. You need to have a strategy on how to make a social impact in the world, or else they won't invest in your company. In addition, he is also, he serves as a vice chairman um, at Joe Juice Company, one of the fastest growing retail brands in Scandinavia. And we could mention so, so much more. But since we had traveled to visit Morten, it's so much better to hear from him himself in person. Uh, He is quite known in Denmark for his take on um, how people present themselves. If a person meets one another for the first time and you ask a person, Who are you? people will, most people will respond with, their occupation or their job title when we in reality are so so much more and um, well we're sitting here in the beautiful Sanders Hotel in Copenhagen and uh, if I were
1: to ask you Morton, who are you uh, what would you say to me I would say that I'm i I'm a human being that is trying hard every day to live my life in such a manner that is easy for those people which love i cannot live without to love me tomorrow but now i've also rehearsed for quite some years on uh, on on that answer but that that would be my definition of who i am uh, which is fundamentally telling you uh, that i'm a person that has acknowledged that i cannot live without uh, somebody to love and somebody to uh, to be loved by uh, mm. and also trying to be Fairly precise about the fact that it's not that I need the love of everyone but there is some few individuals out there which love uh, is a necessity for my ability to find uh, life meaningful.
0: Mm. When did you come to that conclusion that that was uh,
1: who you are? I think it started to emerge when I became uh, a father for the first time. I have uh, two children and actually a third one uh, on the way um, with, the same, with the same woman. Uh, So uh, by June, I'll have a daughter, which is 16, a son, which is 13, and then a little baby. So that's a quite dramatic change in in life structures. But when I became a dad uh, for the first time 16 years ago, I think it started to uh, emerge that uh, the meaning of life was no longer just to realize myself and my own needs and ambitions. I would say I had another definition of what the meaning of life was before, uh, I became a parent and that was that I wanted the ma- the clear majority of every human being that I met to remember me and hopefully for something positive but I would say that's a quite egomanic uh, and egocentric uh, life purpose because it's, it was just all about coming in and yelling uh, fundamentally and seeking a lot of, of attention so I'm happy that I matured a little bit and and I think uh, parenthood is, is is a strong. Uh, enabler for uh, for maturing mm. because you simply erase yourself as the epicenter uh, of, of of your own life uh, from the day where you become a parent. You do understand that the meaning of your life is not yourself; it is something uh, bigger and larger than yourself. In this case, uh, the um, the livelihood uh, and the prosperity of your uh, of your children
0: mm. has that also affected the way you think of business as before. Uh, that, yes. way, that
1: way of thinking about uh, life? I, I think it has and I think it's very important when you think about how your, how your mind and how your intellectual uh, framework evolves I think it's very important that you don't exaggerate how much you actually knew uh, when you were 30 uh, just because you know it today what I'm trying to say is I think that uh, it's been an evolution of my awareness of how it changed uh, my, uh, my perception of business. It wasn't as if that I became a dad, and then the day after when I met in uh, to work at the Danske Bank Group, then I fundamentally changed the way that I led and the way that I looked at business. But, but I think that what comes with the fact that you become a parent, and now since I'm going to become a parent again June this year, mm. to a child that will uh, go into the 22nd century, uh, then of course your perspective on everything changes. Mm. Uh, your perspective on how society should be sustainably developed changes when you're no longer just thinking about your own lifetime or just the, the century that you're in. Mm. So I think in, in that regard, it has uh, it has influenced and inspired me to have a more long-term thinking mm. than I would have had, I presume, if I hadn't become uh, a parent. But I think what have been... Uh, the most fundamental difference in the way that I've thought about business and leadership comes out of the fact that I have uh, taken an education inside philosophy and mm. I have come with a philosophical framework into the arena of, uh, of business. Um, and, and, and and therefore I think that I've been looking at business and I've been looking at uh, leadership uh, differently uh, than, than many others simply due to that fact. There's not too many philosophers that have used uh, uh, 18 years of their life uh, in inside uh, big corporates and uh, in international business.
0: Mm. Now we are in Copenhagen. Yes. And, um, but you're not from around here? No.
1: no. Where did it all start out for you? It started out in the most northern part of the kingdom of, um, of Denmark. Yeah. Uh, a little village called uh, Ugerby. It has... Um, less than uh, 200 inhabitants. And I think for you to truly understand uh, what type of community mm-hmm. and surroundings I grew up in, I have to um, uh, ask you kindly to travel with me back in time and into my mind when I was approximately uh, 13, 14 uh, years of age. Because at that time I concluded that the, the village Ugabu that I uh, lived in had to be among uh, the two largest and deepest existentialistic assholes you could live in, <laughs> and right. therefore I, uh, I deemed it to be my quest in life to flee from Ugoby as fast as I could,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which I also did when I turned eighteen and graduated from uh, the local high school in the municipality of, uh, of Jönköping, uh, and then I and then I fled to, to Aarhus to start to study philosophy and history. There is a little footnote. That one thing is that I, I flee from uh, from Ugarby when I was was 18. But I've actually for the past couple of years been searching for a summer house uh, in Uguapi or in the area around it. So so okay. circular mm-hmm. can we human beings be yeah. uh, as we as we mature and as we grow? So why do you want to go back and have a summer house there? I think it's because I actually uh, have come to the acknowledgement that I was given a lot of privileges by the fact that I grew up in a community that was so small, so intimate, so flat, so transparent, so secure, uh, and uh, in a scenography of nature so beautiful Mm. uh, that uh, it's been a gift more than a prison. Uh, But I think when you are a teenager... Uh, you uh, you start thinking that everything around you inclusive uh, including your parents is something you need to get rid of and distance mm-hmm. yourself from mm-hmm. uh, and then as you uh, go through life then you you become a little bit more wise yeah. but i uh, i flee to um, flee to house uh, mm-hmm. to study at the university study philosophy and history so i i took an education that at uh, that time at least accordingly to uh, those that were experts on what type of of skills uh, the Danish and the international labor market needed,
2: Mm.
1: I was educating myself directly to unemployment. And um, I had actually probably been uh, unemployed uh, today if it hadn't been because I was exposed to something as effective as nepotism. Um, I had an older brother that had taken an education uh, that was much more, uh, how should I say, aligned with the expert's definition of what the labor market needed. So he had already found a very good job in the Danske Bank Group, where he was working inside HR. And in that capacity, he uh, had been invited together with the executives of the Danske Bank Group uh, to support them in a leadership course in Switzerland. And one night, uh, when they were in Switzerland, he was uh, having dinner with the executives, and there he listened into a conversation where especially one of the executives was very dissatisfied with the lack of of wildness in his uh, among his employees and then my older brother was kind enough and intelligent enough uh, to poke that executive after dinner had finished to inform him that if that was the only qualification he was looking for in uh, in new uh, hires he actually was uh, confirmed uh, and and certain that he knew Somebody that was uh, was qualified, potentially even overqualified, namely his um, his younger brother, and so it went that I um, that I got an invitation uh, to uh, to come to a job interview uh, at the Danske Bank Group. Uh, the executive that my brother had poked uh, called me up. And, uh, and asked me whether I was, uh, was willing to come and I uh, was, uh, uh, I had been uh, notified by my older brother that I could expect the phone call and the invitation so I'd also prepared myself for how I wanted to respond to the invitation so I told the executive that I was very, very grateful for the invitation very honored uh, to receive the invitation, very surprised as well that said, uh, then I could not accept his invitation other than if he uh, uh, accepted two demands that I had and one of the demands, uh, I'll have to say, when I look back at it now, uh, 18, uh, 19 years uh, back in time, I'm I'm, I'm, not too proud of that demand. But nonetheless, I demanded uh, that uh, the interview could only be placed on a specific weekday. It had to be a Friday, and it could not start earlier than 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At that time, I thought there was a lot of intelligence and reason in that demand, uh, because as I told um At least I told myself uh, that uh, that job interview could not take more than 30 minutes before the executive had concluded that I was highly unqualified to any type of job in the Danske Bank Group. And then uh, the time would be 3.30 for uh, a person that grew up in the northern part of Denmark, uh, lived in Aarhus and hardly been to Copenhagen. Then it could take a long time to find uh, the most prestigious cafe in Copenhagen at that time called Café Europa a café that I wanted to go in and have uh, a drink at because it was uh, named by uh, a movie made by uh, the film director Lars von Trier uh, called Europa, and I was very fascinated by Lars von Trier. So I wanted to go in there, then that would be around uh, three uh, uh, thirty that the job interview ended, then I would be there because I couldn't find my ways around the Copenhagen. It would probably be 4 o'clock, then there would be, since it was a queue, uh, since it was a Friday, there would be a queue to the bar, and then I had calculated inside my own head that I wouldn't get the drink before at earliest 4.30, and then my friends I was already at work, uh, because they've taken a more, uh, uh, how should I say, useful uh, education, then they could come and join me, and then I was prevented from the humiliation of sitting and drinking uh, drinks and beers uh, on my own at this uh, fashionable uh, cafe. Now, the second demand that I put forward is a demand that I still, uh, as of this day, believe is a demand that is fair and that any person should actually uh, put forward. Which is that I told the executive that I refused to send him the classical cover letter, this one picture in which you should unfold uh, who you are as a human being, what values drives you, and why this job of all jobs in the uh, global labor market is the one job that you want the most. Because... As I told, it it goes for him as well as for me, as for any other human being. I was way too complicated to be covered by a single uh, uh, co- single-page cover letter. And then the executive took uh, the word again uh, after he have taken a long pause, listening to my two demands. And then he said to me, "Do you know what? You can you can come whenever you want. You can also choose not to come. I don't care at all. And you can send me." whatever you want to send me, or nothing, I couldn't care less, Uh, I'm unfortunately a person that keeps uh, my word, and I have unfortunately promised your older brother that you're going to a job interview with me, uh, and therefore he hanged up, Uh, and thereafter, sorry, he hanged up. And then I I sat down, and uh, uh, of course, um, was a little bit uh, saddened by uh, how things ended, but I uh, knew from the good Calvinistic Christian upbringing that I had gotten in the northern part of Denmark that when you have uh, unintentionally humiliated another person or offended another person, it's not enough uh, just to, uh, to write a letter and say I'm sorry or to call the person up and say I'm sorry. What you need to do if you really want that person's forgiveness, uh, what you need to do is to, uh, to work hard for that person. So I sat down the same night where I in the afternoon and had the conversation with the executive, and then I wrote a 10-page memo uh, that entailed uh, all the ideas that I believe the Danske Bank Group simply had to realize in the first decade of the 21st century to become the most human bank in the world. And then I went down to the local kiosk, Uh, found an envelope uh, and a stamp uh, and sent it off via the physical mailbox. Uh, Next day, I called up my father and asked him to send down with physical mail a tie-tie to me because I didn't know how to tie a tie. A couple of days later, my mother uh, came down uh, to, to Aarhus with the suit that I've had my confirmation in, and then we went together to the tailor to make sure that it was laid out so it fitted me again couple of days later, I had a haircut for the first time in, in more than a year. I took off my beard for the first time in half a year. And on a Friday morning, I went by train to, to Copenhagen and arrived to the headquarters of Copenhagen in the city center of, um, of Copenhagen uh, a little bit before three o'clock. Went into a, a meeting room larger than uh, the living room that I grew up in was sat at a meeting table larger than the dining table that I grew up at. I had coffee poured uh, and I took it all in one swallow. It tasted ridiculously bad and I'm still, as of this day, confused about the fact that I'm addicted to it. But I I drank it uh, so fast because I want to send a strong signal to the executive that I was a grown-up and a person that could assimilate myself with capitalism very fast. And if that took that I drank coffee I, I drank coffee he could have asked me to do anything and i've done it uh, i'm very happy he only asked me to uh, drink coffee and not uh, 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 drag down my pants and then um, and then he asked me so are you um, are you sitting uh, are you sitting well which i found a very strange question because i was sitting in a a Viener chair a very famous danish designer uh, the same chair that uh, nixon and john f kennedy was also sitting in in the first tv transmitted presidential debates uh presidential candidate debates so i said i was sitting fantastically and then he said the reason why i'm asking you is because before we go to the formal part of uh, the job interview i want to let you know that i've written uh, i've read uh, the the memo that you've written and submitted to me i've actually read it twice and therefore, I can tell you, young man, that there's not one idea that you unfold in that memo that the Danske Bank Group can use for anything in my lifetime. And then, before I uh, had the time to respond to uh, what he said, he raised his hand uh, to send a signal that I should continue to be quiet. And then he said to me, Sorry, I wasn't precise enough. What I tried to tell you was that so there wasn't one idea that you presented in that memo that the Danske Bank Group in his own lifetime can use. For anything, and then I look at the watch which I uh, wore at that time, uh, and I had defined it as my target, as my KPI, that I simply had to stay inside uh, that job interview for at least thirty minutes for it to be a success. So I could call up my mother uh, that had also been working in one of the local banks in the northern part of Jutland um, uh, to tell her, without feeling that I lied, that the job interview had been a success. And then i could uh, feel that i had to fight quite hard for the reminding 28 minutes to reach that uh, kpi to make a very very long conversation with the executive very short then he ended up telling me that uh, he had never met a person neither young or mature that was so aggressively willing to expose his own ignorance as i was and only of that reason and no other reasons he was uh, willing to offer me a job in the Danske bank group uh, if i accepted two demands that he had and the first demand he put forward was that he was going to give me the lowest salary he accordingly to danish law uh, could give a newly educated academic uh, person and the second demand was uh, that he was going to provide me with the most ridiculous and humiliating title he could find in the official title hierarchy of the danske bank group and so it went in the age of 25 and newly graduated with a master in history and philosophy that i was uh, hired in as a junior marketing consultant without knowing what it meant to be a consultant without having studied as much as just for one minute what marketing was and with the humiliation of having a title that stamped me with junior in my uh, in my forehead and uh, if i may and I know it's a very long story, I just want to end, what is actually the learning of this story? Um, and what? why is this story one that I think perhaps um, a few people can find uh, uh, an insight, and inspiration in? It's because that it's firstly a story about coincidences. And when you start thinking about how much coincidences are actually defining our life, um you come to the conclusion that there is fundamentally only two things we human beings share. Uh, The one thing that we share is that we're going to die. We don't speak too often about it, but when we do, and when we speak about death in a, a deep and enlightened manner, that discussion have the ability to give some perspective and direction for our life because we know it has an end, and therefore we need to utilize the one life that we have in the best possible manner. Thereby, I'm also saying that we should actually talk about death a little bit more than we actually are doing. Mm -hmm. But then there's another thing we human beings share, which we hardly talk about. And that is that independently of how long my life, your life, any person's life, will be from this moment and onwards. And of course, we cross our fingers and beg to whatever we believe in, that it goes for you and for me and for everybody else that are listening to uh, our conversation, that their lives are going to be as long as humanly possible. But independently of whether that life is going to be long or short, there's one thing that we know, and that is that that life is going to be full of coincidences. And a life that is full of coincidences is per definition also unpredictable. And if we start thinking about that independently of how hard we structure, plan, train, prepare ourselves for tomorrow. It's a constant that also tomorrow and the day after will be full of coincidences, thereby per default unpredictable. We come to a philosophical question. Since life is per definition full of coincidence and unpredictable, are we then equally good as human beings? to master the unpredictability of life? Are we equally good on mastering the unknown? And here my philosophical answer is, no, we're not. Some human beings, when life suddenly hits them with something unforeseen, something unpredictable, such as one of their dear ones dies and they are suddenly uh, embraced by a sorrow so deep that they have never ever believed that they could feel so weak and so sad in life then there are some human beings that are capable of actually taking that pain turn it into an insight build it into their wisdom and into their character and it actually makes them into human beings that are capable of carrying themselves through life in a much more determined trustworthy and enlightened manner and then there are others that when they're hit with sorrow Of this depth are paralyzed for life and never ever again is capable of truly traveling through life with hope uh, and with light and exactly in the same way when somebody is suddenly unprepared exposed to a light a possibility that a corridor of opportunities are opening up for them then there are some human beings that just go by it either because they don't dare reaching out uh, or because they simply don't see it. And then there's others that even though that they are unprepared, they go into that corridor of light and opportunity. They embrace it.
2: Mm.
1: And then that takes them to a plateau in life that they never, ever imagined they should go to. So we're not equally good at mastering. Mm. The unpredictability of life. Why, uh,
0: why do you think people are hesitating to take possibilities that comes before them? Because, for, we, for example, in uh, business, uh, or some are afraid to change the job, uh, even though they don't like it. Why uh, is it that people,
1: you know, stick to what they have? That's because that we have created uh, a type of 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 human being uh, that is primarily. Uh, primarily uh, standing on, on, on a foundation of self-confidence and not self-worth. And if there's two things that we have fundamentally confused ourselves uh, about, it's the difference between self-confidence and self-worth. So self-confidence is a feeling that emerges inside us human beings mm. when we feel uh, a certain that we can master a certain technique, Profession, position, etc. So self confidence is tied to the fact that I am confident that I can go in and be a chairman of a board. Mm. I'm confident. Mm. I can master that role, position, and those techniques that are attached to that role and that position.
0: But how did you, there was a time maybe when you didn't were confident that. That, was the, that you were confident in taking that role. When you take the
1: first step, what do you think uh, happens there when you take like the big leap? But not too many people actually take the big leap. Uh, and you look at how young people today is traveling through life. Mm. You reach an age of, of, of becoming a teenager. Mm-hmm. At that time, you are not certain about much. Uh, wise you are not Mm. but you have a lot of feelings and you have a lot of curiosity then what the educational system is all about in the nordic region and in the western world is that we're pumping those young people not with self-worth but with self-confidence we put them into curriculums that is all about that you have to learn certain techniques those techniques techniques you're going to learn so you in the end of the day can choose to take an education. Uh, at a university as an example, mm. that will qualify you to a specific role. Mm. So I don't think many people are taking a big leap. I don't believe that many business leaders are truly courageous. Mm. If there was a lot of business leaders that was truly courageous, then the world wouldn't look as it's looking today with a capitalism that is corrupt and with a business world that is polluting the world mm. as never before. So there hasn't there hasn't been a big leap. People are simply just taking a path through life mm. that isn't existentialistic, but is a professional path in life. But let me just finish the other thing, because self-confidence is tied to the fact that you know that you can master a role or technique or position. Self-worth is something different. And we haven't built up our educational system. We haven't built up our societies. We haven't built up the way that we do parenthood mm. to actually ensure that the child becomes a teenager that becomes a young adult that becomes a mature adult that is actually full of self-worth and self-respect self-worth is a feeling that emerges inside yourself when you independently of whether you are certain that you can master a certain role tomorrow whether you can master a certain technique better than average or better than most tomorrow Mm. that you feel that you are something worth as a human being in yourself, you actually think that you ethically, morally, is a good human being. You appreciate yourself as a moral individual. That is not how we bring up our children through the formal educational system. And it's not how we are grooming and educating and training the people that are in businesses when they come in young, Know how we are training them and how we are educating them. It is to master a technique, a position, or a role. Most businesses, and I'm saying it goes for 99% of all businesses, mm. do not have any existentialistic ambition with the young people that come directly from university and to their first working day. Uh, they have no existentialistic ambition. They have no whatsoever structured approach to developing and strengthening that young uh, adults self-worth they're gonna pump that person with self-confidence so they can make that person climb the career ladder, Mm -hmm. and hopefully through that create a lot of shareholder value but that's not the same as you are actually creating existentialistic value for that person that brings me to that since we have confused ourselves in the difference between self-confidence and Mm self-worth we've also uh, being, been, been, been uh, praying to the wrong ladder in life, namely the career ladder instead of the ladder of self-respect. And I believe that there's no reason for any human being to have an ambition of climbing any career ladder. You should actually erase it. You should turn your back to it immediately.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And where you, what you instead should do is you should climb the ladder of self-respect. Uh, and funny enough, if you actually can carry yourself after you've climbed the ladder of self-respect every day, uh, if you can carry yourself with self-respect, you will also become a much, much better uh, leader with a much, much stronger uh, followership Mm. than one that is just climbing the career ladder. But the ladder of self-respect is one which stands on a foundation of honesty and where you every day remind yourself that you need to insist And that is your task nobody else's task that's your individual task and quest in life you need to insist on to be as honest towards yourself as humanly possible and only invite people into your life that is honest towards you if you do that then you win the opportunity to develop a healthy self insight an insight into both what you can and what you can't if that happens then you can develop a healthy self-awareness into both who you are and who you are not When you develop a healthy self-awareness, you win the opportunity to develop a healthy self-worth, meaning what type of ethical and moral compass is it that I every day need to carry myself in accordance with to make sure that I feel that I'm a worthy person. Hmm. And if that happens, then you win the opportunity to develop a healthy self-respect. But that is not how we have uh, inspired told, structured the development of human beings in the Western world mm. for the past uh, many, many decades. Mm. And it has a consequence mm. because, and let me be a little bit dramatic, what keeps us human beings alive is not our self-confidence, it's our self-worth. As long as we have had something called a civilization in the Western world, let's say 2,500 years before Christ until now, so for the past approximately four or five thousand years we have documentation every year in and out that individuals human beings that had the strongest confidence that they could stand up in front of an audience and entertain them so they would never ever forget it artists that could play music that was better than any people that could create political visions that were larger and more important than others. Scientists that could go into the laboratory and make science that in their own lifetime was historical. They had no whatsoever lack of confidence that they could master that. But the same individuals have chosen to take their own life. So independently of the fact that they did not lack self-confidence, they actually lacked the belief that their own life was enough worth for them to stay alive. Mm. So we as human beings are both physically and existentialistically only capable of staying alive mm. if we constantly and always make ourselves aware that what we need to strengthen, evolve, and develop mm. is our self-worth and then self-confidence. It can be the dot over the I, but it can never, ever be the I.
0: Mm. It's like the actor Robin Williams. Yes. Yeah so he was, he was like everybody in the world yeah. loved him could travel anywhere in the world everybody loves him exactly but in Anthony, the end, uh, yeah.
1: Anthony Bourdain uh, yeah. the CNN <laughs> uh, 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 journalist that made the most popular mm. uh, uh, gastronomic uh, uh, cooking programs celebrated awarded and so on and so forth mm. uh, that also chose to take his own life and so on uh, it, 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 it goes mm. for every year every decade for as long as we've actually had documentation mm. of uh, of of civilization mm. uh, and so so the big leap how can you how can you be courageous uh, when you are low on self worth it's not possible no it's impossible mm. uh, the lower your self worth the more paralyzed you are mm. in your own uh In your own life but uh, but uh, and and just just on that
3: Mm.
1: so and coming into to to leadership businesses and the 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 existentialistic discussions because I think what is important to understand is that we have created we created a a cultural paradigm where we have uh, insisted on the fact that anything commercial is in opposition to anything existentialistic.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So that businesses is all about driving profitability, revenue growth, and so on and so forth. And of mm-hmm. course it is. That's like, capitalism. It's capitalism. Yeah. So we have actually created a way of thinking where we're saying capitalism is one thing, humanism is a different thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm saying rubbish.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm saying that capitalism, as we know it, in its own right, is unhealthy and it's proven to be so many, many times. Mm. Uh, and this is also something you're trying to change with your company Voluntas, right? E- exactly. Yeah? Yeah. Exactly. As I'm also saying, that humanism in its own right mm. have proven to be without the necessary impact. It's become an utopia. If we take capitalism, what are then the examples? We can take 1929, we can take 1989, we can take the credit crunch and the financial crisis mm-hmm. in 2008, 2009, and the impact that I have had on, uh, on, on the global society. Mm. If you take humanism, uh, then uh, if you take communism, communism was strongly uh, inspired by humanism. Uh, humanism, when it's actually it's tried to become... Uh, humanism has a tendency to transform into totalism, into fascism, into suppression of human beings. So what I'm concluding is that the capitalism in his own right, the humanism that we know in his own right is not gonna create any value of any uh, 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 type in the future. What we need to do is actually to insist that they needs to be merged. And that's the reason why I'm, call- I'm talking about capitalistic humanism. I'm simply talking about that we should erase capitalism as an ism. I'm talking about that we should erase humanism as an ism and just accept that what the future uh, demands of us is a capitalistic humanism. Meaning, of course, we need to earn money to fund yeah. lives, but,
0: but... the capitalism is very strong, right? So 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 you have to play on their terms to change it, yeah? yeah?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, exactly. Mm. So what I'm saying is, those that, was, those that are going to criticize me for saying we should put humanism into the grave mm-hmm. or saying that it's absolutely ridiculous to put capitalism into the grave, they uh, would say uh, the following. People want money, and as long as there is a crave for wealth, then capitalism will, in the end of the day, be a system that cannot be changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying you're partly right. Because I don't believe and I'll say the other ones that say that capitalism should just be totally erased and we should never, ever uh, uh, have anything to do with it uh, uh, because it is corrupt, uh, then the answer to both those critics is the same. Mm. Because what I'm saying is I do not believe that there is a sufficient majority of the world's population that is willing to go down in income I actually believe that we in the western world
3: mm-hmm.
1: can at a maximum accept to stay at the same income level but to believe that the majority of Norwegians, Swedes, Danes, Germans, uh, uh, sisters and brothers in the Benelux countries etc are willing to go down in income mm. is for me so naive mm. that is irrelevant to discuss mm. so at best We'll have a western world that will accept that we stay at the income level that we have but then we have the new world that has a crave for increasing the income and furthermore morally uh, i think we should support them in it mm. and that means that we need to create more wealth mm. and capitalism is a system in which you can create more wealth now what is the difference between the the classical, dominating type of capitalism and capitalistic humanism. It is that the capitalism that we know as of today, and which are dominating by far Mm -hmm. still 99% independently of all the advertisement that you're seeing from companies that want to express that Mm -hmm. they are extremely responsible and they are signing up to the UN SDG and uh, so on and so yeah. forth, and doing impact assessments. Mm. If you look at the assets under management by financial institutions that are in impact investments versus just investments in where you get the highest return short-term, mm. Mm. I believe, and I'm saying with a little caveat and footnote, I may be not 100% precise. I think it's around 98% that is in classical short-term profit oriented investments and two percent in impact investments Mm. Uh, just to give you uh, an example so it's all just ethical washing Mm. of the brand Mm. but so you have the old type of capitalism which is still dominating and then you have the new type of capitalism which i call capitalistic humanism what is the difference the difference is that the old type of capitalism is rooted in legality and my type of capitalism, the capitalistic humanism, mm-hmm. is rooted in morality. And that brings us to understand the fundamental change between legality and morality, because we also totally fucked up our mind mm-hmm. in the difference between legality and morality. And they are two distinctly different things. Legality has to do with the law. Mm-hmm. It is what you are allowed, according to the law, to do and not to do. Mm-hmm. Morality is what is the right thing to do. Laws are put into place not to describe how an ideal behavior would look, but to ensure that we've put up a maximum for how big a prick you are allowed to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Laws are put into place mm-hmm. to hedge the risk of the worst traits of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's not as if because I stay inside the law, I'm the finest, most beautiful, kind, generous, loving, tolerant person. No, we simply just ensuring that there is a maximum for how intolerant you can be,
3: mm.
1: how greedy you can be, how irresponsible you can be. Mm. Morality is about what is right, to do independently of what you are allowed to do according to the law. And 99% of all capitalism in this world has nothing to do with morality, but actually just trying very hard every day to stay inside the boundaries of the law and not to break it. Mm. And we're finding out that many companies are actually finding that pretty hard. Mm. Volkswagen, Mm. Uh, 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 the uh, the financial industry and so on and so forth. Mm. Let me give... A very personal example on the difference between legality and morality because i think it's important that we shouldn't talk about businesses as something abstract businesses is a human organism for all businesses then when the people leave the organization after a full working day most of the value of the company leaves the company
3: Mm.
1: businesses are created by human beings they are sustained by human beings. They are human organisms. So when we talk about the ethics and morality of businesses, we are talking about the ethics and morality of human beings, namely those human beings that go in the door of that business every day, and especially those that put the bottom in the chair in the boardroom or at the executive floor. Coming back to the difference between legality and morality, As I told you earlier on, I have a daughter which is 16. She turned 16 in November. That means that more or less precisely, you have had the right for 14 months to have sexual intercourse with my daughter according to Danish law. That is your legal right if she wants to.
0: I sincerely
1: do not hope you will find that morally Mm. right to do. And today, very few business leaders enters their offices and uses their power in the name of morality. They still use it in the name of short-term profitability. And then what they govern isn't a moral compass, mm. but a legal compass. Is it legal what we're doing? Mm. And to be absolutely honest, I don't, I don't give a jackass About people that are saying but what I did wasn't illegal Mm. no but you know what it was disgusting Mm. anyway do you think we ever come there yes I do believe yeah because I do if you look at the younger generations yeah uh, the so-called Millennials but especially the generation that comes after generation Z, Mm -hmm. they are much more and to, to a degree we've never ever seen before uh, uh, occupied about uh, societal and moral issues. Uh, and uh, if you take both uh, uh, age groups, both uh, generations, uh, then uh, they are the two first generations ever to say that they would actually sincerely prioritize working for a company that has a positive social impact on their surroundings than looking at their paycheck.
0: Mm. Do you think it's typical Scandinavian? or think? No, it's a,
1: global, it's a global phenomenon. It's a global. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, there's something kicking in here that has something to do with the educational level mm-hmm. of, of, of the people that we're talking about. Uh, but the better educated you
3: are,
1: mm. uh, as a millennium or as a generation set, the, the more you're willing to actually compromise your paycheck to ensure that what you're working for is something that is actually uh, uh, morally uh, uh, strongest foundation and mm. having a documented positive impact mm. on, on society uh, as as a whole and on uh, on the future which also means that if you actually are a business that wants to protect your business in the future you need to understand that if you are actually running your business only on legal grounds mm. and not on a strong foundation of some moral coordinates mm. you're going to have a very very hard time attracting the best brains mm. and the offices will actually either be empty or you'll have all the morons sitting in there mm. which on top of that is also uh, uh, unethical mm. it's not uh, sounding as if you're creating a successful business mm. going with that strategy but what is but it will also be parallel with that the people that are getting the education that is more
0: uh, into morality will also be the customers Exactly. So they will also demand it from the companies to be that way or they will
1: not trade it. Turns, it, it, yeah. it, 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 it goes both ways. Yeah. Uh, and, and it goes both ways because um, we are just one human being. Mm. Uh, so it's the same human being that is a citizen, that is a, a consumer, that is uh, an employee. Mm. Uh, and the young generation to a much higher degree uh, than uh, than previous generations. Uh, is simply insisting on the fact that they are allowed to be the one and the same all the time. They do not accept as partly my generation, I'm 43, Mm. but especially my parents' generation have accepted that you should be one when you go to work and you should be a different one when you're at home. Uh, That's also your latest book is about, isn't it? Yes, that is uh, uh, where... One of the key one of the key themes of of the book that is that due to the work life balance uh, terminology uh, that have been extremely successful and have more or less uh, created uh, at a discussion uh, that have been hard to uh, to be in opposition to or discourse that has been hard to be in uh, in opposition to that says that as a society, and as a business, and also as an individual, uh, it's important that we balance work against life.
3: Mm.
1: That is what the the, the term is saying, work-life balance. So it says that work is one thing, life is something different. Mm -hmm. As soon as you accept that terminology, Mm -hmm. you're also saying that I should not demand the same ethics, the same moral, the same intimacy, the same respect at work as I do Mm -hmm. in life in general. Yeah, gotcha. Mm. But the whole work-life balance terminology Mm. is just utterly bollocks. Mm. Because, of course, work is not something different than life. Work is something embedded into and an integral part of life. So firstly, it's not about work-life balance, it's about life balance. Mm as soon as you accept that work is an integral part of life, work becomes something existentialistic. It becomes something very, very intimate to your existence as a human being. As soon as work becomes existentialistic, you will start demanding something different of your superiors, Mm. of your employer, and of yourself as you go to work but the whole work-life balance terminology have for the past 30 40 years created what I call the three big semantic manipulations with the modern human beings mind and those three semantic manipulations we need to dismantle very very fast because otherwise we'll continue to see the fastest documented deterioration of mental health mm. in the Western world that we have seen ever Never ever have we been more depressed, more stressed, more lonely, more full of anxiety uh, in the Western world uh, than we are today. Mm. Uh, And that's actually quite a paradox because at the same time where we are seeing that we're becoming more and more depressed, more and more stressed, more and more lonely, more and more full of anxiety, Mm. we're also seeing that we technologically and economically are progressing because never ever have we been uh, uh, richer in the world never have we been better educated mm. never ever have we lived longer mm. never ever have we been more connected through technology than we are so we're seeing that wealth is increasing but the well-being of human beings are decreasing mm. and if that continues that is fundamentally something that are going to dismantle the welfare model of uh, 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 the western world pretty fast because who wants to be a part of a system and a democratic structure in which I'm actually feeling more and more lonely more and more stressed more and more depressed more and more full of anxiety uh, of course you will not mm. but back how can, how can we change that we can change that by dismantling the uh, 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 the three semantic manipulations mm. but i just want to say i just want to say because now talking i'm talking about global figures here yeah let me just make them very precise mm. 31 percent. Of all Norwegians, accordingly to uh, uh, a study made in 2018, feel stressed every day, Hmm. 31%. If you look into, and that's on average across uh, all age groups, among the 16 to 24 year of age in Norway is 42%. Uh, In Denmark, the figures are more or less the same, a little bit lower. Then you look at the engagement levels. in in the labor force Mm. globally. 86% of the global labor force are either disengaged or proactively disengaged. I'm just saying it again. 86% That's That's a a goddamn Mm. high figure. Mm. That only leaves 14% that is either proactively engaged or just engaged in Mm. their work Mm. globally. Mm. In Norway, it's 84%. That is, proactive, disengaged or disengaged. In Denmark, it's 79%. There's just something wrong here. Mm. And these things, of course, ties together. Coming back to how do we change it? We change it by understanding that uh, we can't chop up life, we can't chop up time, and we can't chop up our personality. And they are the three semantic manipulations that have happened with our mind. That is, that we've actually been taught that we can. Let's start with the first one chop-up time. Mm. That's the reason why many of us are talking about work time, family time, spare time, quality time. But there was a guy called Newton Mm. uh, that uh, several centuries back uh, taught us that time is combined, is absolute, and is running, and is furthermore eternal, so it also runs after. We're no longer here. There is just time. Mm. Then I know that a couple of centuries later, Another bloke came around the block called Einstein, who told us a little bit uh, about black holes. Uh, but if you or me or anybody else doesn't have either the talent, the physics, or the uh, uh, motivation to become an astronaut, fly out in outer space and drop yourself into a black hole, then there is just time. Mm. Time is running and it's never ever come up, coming back. Mm. Anything else is just a semantic construction and thereby a manipulation with your mind. But when you start believing you can chop up time, you also start believing you can chop up life. And that is the reason why many of us are using words as work life, okay. yeah. family life mm. and so on and so forth. But there is just one big combined complex beautiful life mm. that is being lived in one time that is running and never coming back. Mm. And now we come to the final and most dangerous Of the three semantic manipulation, which is a consequence of the fact that we believe we can chop up time, and therefore believe we can chop up life, and that is that we believe we can chop up our own personality, Mm. and that's the reason why we often listening to people saying when they talk about themselves, "Morton as a philosopher," "Morton as an entrepreneur," "Morton as a dad," "Morton as a husband," uh, 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 "Morton as an author," and so on and so forth. But when I looked myself in the mirror this morning, way too early, besides noticing that it was pretty uh, obvious that I was 43 of age, if not more, then I yet again had to come to the surprising conclusion there was only one Morton in the mirror. There wasn't a Morton the dad, Morton the philosopher, Morton the author, Morton the entrepreneur. There was just more, one Morton. Exactly as when I am going to be buried, then there will only be one coffin in the the church there won't be a coffin for more than the dad, more than the entrepreneur, more than the philosopher, more than the author, and in that coffin, my one life that I have lived will recite, and that life will either be full of regrets or few regrets, mm. and that will define how my last breath is taken, namely either in sorrow or with happiness, knowing that I lived the life that I wanted. To live. Accepting these three semantic manipulations as being rubbish and dismantling them, meaning accepting the fact, each and one of us, that we're living one life in one time, then it comes back as one person. That brings us to two questions we then individually need to answer. The first one is do we accept, or sorry, do we do we agree that the best time as the one human being i am in the one life that i've been given the best time i can spend in that life is spent with those that i love and on something that i love mm-hmm. then as of this date i've not met any person uh, that has been willing to argue the opposite it's also a pretty hard argument to mm. uh, try to build up because then you're going to argue that the best time in life you yeah. spend on something that you truly sincerely hate <laughs> and as you build up that argument you're going to reveal clear distinct psychopathic traits so I won't recommend to mm. anybody to try to do that, rather just go to a shrink. But
0: if you, still there are people working their whole life in jobs they hate. Yes, and yeah. that's the
1: second question. Yeah. Because if you do accept the fact that the best time in life is spent with somebody that you love and on something that you love, then we come to the second question why the hell do you then accept spending so much time of your one life that never comes back Mm. together with somebody that you don't love or don't love you Mm. and on something they're not truly passionate about. And it may be that we intellectually have convinced ourselves that we can't demand of ourselves that we should be exposed to love when we go to work. But our mind, we cannot fool. Mm. Because our mind is telling us that it's meaningless. It's Mm. simply meaningless to spend so much time, half of your awakened time, all weekdays Mm. in an environment in which you're not exposed to intimacy, Mm. to compassion, uh, to kindness. And now I know that in Denmark and in Norway and in Sweden and all over the world talking about that you should love your colleagues, you should love your boss and your boss should love you. People get scared immediately and say, but it's impossible. You're simply demanding too much. Love is something private. Mm. Firstly, it's yet again ignorance that is our biggest enemy. Because when I use the word love, I use it in a specific, distinct manner. And here we shouldn't search for inspiration among the modern leadership gurus. We should search for inspiration in ancient Greek among the Asian philosophers, mm-hmm. because the Asian Greek philosophers they had four different types of love. They had eros, which is the type of love that we are seeing when we're going to the movies and seeing a Hollywood production. Mm-hmm. Eros is a love that I have for my wife. It's a love between the blood and the flesh. Mm-hmm. Then they also have storge, agape, and philia. And philia is a type of love that I'm talking about. And philia is a type of love. That has nothing to do with the fact that you have the same blood in your veins as i have like the love that i have Mm. to my kids or to my mother or to my brothers it has nothing to do with the love that i have to the flesh to the aesthetics Mm. that is bound in sexuality Mm. filia is a love that emerges when two human beings share purpose and virtues in life Mm. i repeat filia is a type of love that two people can develop between each other if they share purpose and virtues in life mm. and if you are going to work every day independently of where in the world you're going to work and you're going in to a community where you do not share purpose with that community and you do not share virtues with that community mm. then you should leave pretty fast mm because it will make you feel lonely. Mm. It will make you feel tired. It will erode your mental health.
3: Mm.
1: But of course we should demand that there is that type of love, this filia type of love at workplaces. Of course, it's totally possible. Mm. And we need to do it because otherwise we'll see the, uh, the, the continued deterioration of the mental health uh, uh, among the working uh, people in uh, in the world. Mm. And yes, it's a totally different way of doing leadership uh, uh, than we have been educated to and enlightened about for the past uh, b- b- 50, uh, 50 years mm. uh, at least. It's an existentialistic leadership. Uh, and that is not what you have been uh, educated to when you went to Harvard, where I've been, or went to in Saad, Fontainebleau in Paris, no. where I went or to any other type mm. of, of business education, where you are taught there is how you manage other human beings as resources mm. and how you optimize your utilization of those resources. What I'm talking about is how you existentialistically can actually help those human beings to unfold their uh, 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 human potential. So we just need to change the curriculum and we need to accept the fact that That exactly as we have been uh, fighting for changing the energy mix of the world, Mm. uh, developing new technologies that can make sure that the planet doesn't burn down, Mm. then we also need now to uh, uh, innovate and develop new leadership technologies Mm. so we can ensure that the human potential doesn't burn out. uh, It's the opposite of professional distance? Yes. If you are a manager? Exactly. Yeah. So and and to, yeah. very precise and professional distance is what I was brought up with. Yeah. The first time I became a manager, mm. uh, there was a very kind uh, b- b- older guy with gray hair, very very kind, mm. very fine person, uh, and he had the best intentions to giving me the advice that he gave me. Mm. He came over to me and said, "Morton, now you're gonna be uh, 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 managing uh, your now soon former colleagues, and for that to become a success." please establish a professional distance very fast between you and them. Otherwise, it's it's going to be impossible. Mm. And I, I recall how my left and right brain just collided inside my head. What was it that kind person tried to tell me? Was he truly trying to tell me that the way that I could lead that human potential to a collective performance that was higher than average was by me distancing myself from them? Of course not. It's not about professional distance. It's about professional intimacy. Mm -hmm. And professional intimacy is, of course, something different than a private intimacy, coming back to eros and Mm. philia, But it's still an intimacy because work is an intimate part of life Mm -hmm. for any human uh, being that you have the privilege of leading. And you need to establish a corridor of intimacy in which that person can be honest and trustworthy Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to you about what they can't and what they cannot, what they want and what they won't, Mm. and so on and so forth. And in such an environment, Mm. even the most average human being can together create the most extraordinary uh, performance and output. Mm.
0: You think that uh, when you talk about people that stay uh, in a work environment that doesn't share their values, it's because uh, they have the habits of just react and respond all day. They, they don't dictate their time. They just react
1: and respond. Coming back to the uh, uh, being uh, uh, disengaged, yeah, uh, you, you, you're you coming in uh, as a living dead mm. because you have accepted the fact mm. that life is lived when I'm not at work. Mm. So what am I when I'm at work? Mm. I'm not 100% myself. Uh, I'm not living as I would do if I'm surrounded with those that means the world to me, mm. uh, and of course, if you are living dead, uh, then you are reactive, mm. um, and 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 you become a cattle. Uh, but it actually comes back to yet again, the whole terminology that we're using in regards to to leadership, human resource management. Uh, anybody should dwell a little bit about uh, uh, those uh, that 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 uh, terminology. Mm. HR. Yeah, 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 HR. Because HR comes out of human resource management. Human resource management is American management uh, methodology that was developed uh, in the 60s, 70s, and then it uh, conquered more or less the world. And during the 90s, any Nordic organization with respect for themselves of a certain size uh, got it, and now more or less everybody has an HR manager. But it steams out of uh, this management methodology called human resource management. Mm. Now the interesting the two interesting words here are not human because that is pretty easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Is resource and management. What is a resource? All types of minerals are resources. Mm. We're utilising resources. Coal. Copper. Wind. Management, what is the opposition to management? That's leadership. What is the difference between management and leadership? That is that a manager structures how the resources are used optimally. To the benefit of what? The organization. Mm -hmm. Human resource management has proven itself to be without any type of value. And let me try to come with a fairly concrete uh, documentation of that. For more or less any HR manager we have hired, the amount of people in the Western world that become sick at going at work have increased. Mm -hmm. Exactly as it is with the employee satisfaction surveys. 2019 is going to be a yet another record-breaking year for the amount of employee satisfaction service that are conducted in the Western world, inclusive in Norway and Denmark and Sweden and Finland and so on and so forth. Mm. And for every employee satisfaction service we're doing, the workforce becomes more disengaged and more sick. Mm. It's because they're all part of the same system, a system in which organizations and businesses do not accept their moral responsibility for the existentialistic well being mm. of those humans that are coming and spending time to work for that organization and business. Mm. And therefore, we just need to accept that we, the likelihood of defeating climate change, if we have stayed with oil and coal, which we all know now, is just ridiculous. Of course, we can't defeat climate change mm. with oil and coal. Mm. We can't defeat this epidemic of deterioration of the mental health of the working people but just staying with human resource management and employee satisfaction surveys. Those toolboxes that more or less all managers and leaders are walking around with today is insufficient and simply need to be be changed. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah, okay. So we're getting at the end. Um, This podcast is meant for to be an inspiration for people on how they can live their lives. Um, If you were to Cook it down to three advices for them on how to live their yeah. lives. What would it be?
1: Now, firstly, I'm I'm um, on on a good day. I'm a I'm a mediocre uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, and I am for sure not a, a self-help a, um, guru. Um, and my book is not a self-help. Uh, self-help book, mm. uh, but it 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 does contain some some principal coordinates that I believe that every person uh, can benefit from. Um, yeah, reminding themselves about repeatedly. Mm. The first principle is that if you are today incapable of answering distinctly, concretely, shortly, logically, who you are and what the meaning of your life is, it should be your first priority to start searching and training yourself for a clear answer on that. Mm. Very few people are capable of answering clearly on who are you. Actually, when you go to a dinner uh, party and you introduce to people you haven't met before, and you sit down, and I can only recommend people to try uh, this little experiment. And then you, uh, you you met this person for the first time ever in your life 25 minutes ago. You had a little sip of the white wine, uh, and you took a first bite of, uh, of the starters. And then you turn to the person, and then you say, so, tell me who you are. Then uh, 9 out of 10 people will, inside the first 10 seconds, have started telling you what they're doing, When that happens, it's very important that you ask them to be quiet. You look them very deeply in their eyes. You let them know that your vocabulary is so well developed that you're fully equipped to formulate the question, what do you do? And there was a reason why you chose not to ask that question, but the question, who are you? Because it's two totally different questions with two totally different answers. Mm. So the first thing is, as a principle, to any human being, make sure that you have an ambition of developing your own existentialistic uh, wisdom. Mm. Secondly, uh, be uh, as wise, as rigorous about how you spend your time as you spend your money. Mm. Um, and sit down and think about how much time that never comes back from your one life that I spent on something that is unnecessary and with people that actually doesn't provide the necessary intimacy, honesty, and thereby becomes people that you can also both trust but learn from. Uh, and therefore also actually mean that it's important that we sometimes break up with our friends now we break up with our uh, girlfriends and mm. uh, we we uh, we get divorced like hell. Uh, not to say there's anything like yeah, yeah. I think it's a good <laughs> good thing that you can get divorced and you're not forced to be in the same marriage forever if it's an uh, unhappy marriage. So I didn't try to defend Saudi Arabia in any way. <laughs> but 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 back to the fact that we are breaking up with with our girlfriends and our partners, mm. and we are to, we taught. When we're very young, I, I think I taught uh, both my uh, my son and my uh, my daughter in kindergarten that it's absolutely okay that you break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend. But we should also remind ourselves that it's a necessity to break up with your friends. Mm. Because sometimes that love relationship, which is hopefully also a failure relationship mm. of some kind, is no longer there. And the only thing that is left is history, mm. tradition. There's no intimacy. There's no... Inspiration. There's no perspective. Mm. And uh, it takes time to have friendships that is deep and valuable and giving. Mm. Uh, and I think that way too many of us have uh, people around us that we call friends, but it's actually not truly our friends. And we are not truly their friends either. So uh, I think that we should establish a Nordic tradition for breaking up with our friends on a repeated basis to uh, create space mm. for new friends that can actually give us what we need to realize our potential in life and thriving in our existentialistic development. And then finally, and these are for those that are uh, in work, if you have a leader today, if you have a manager that you have a clear intuition, dislikes you, then do not allow that person to lead you. Because nobody that dislikes you will suffer with you. Mm. You will only suffer for people that you like and have sympathy for. And you cannot allow your one life to be exposed to a person that provides you such a deep insecurity as not knowing for, for sure or actually being convinced that if the shit hits the fan, then that person will not be close to me, mm. but will turn the back to me. Mm. And I think that way too many people allow themselves to be led by people that fundamentally do not have any type of intimacy mm. uh, with them. That's very true. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for spending time with us. Um, it's a huge pleasure. It's been a pleasure. No, likewise. Yeah, loved it. Thank Thanks. you very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode with Morten Albeck. It was a true inspiration talking to him and a lot of interesting and thoughtful ideas on how to spend your time in this uh, big, beautiful, imperfect, complex thing called life. Thank you for spending time with us today and stay close for some more inspirational minds coming up in our next episodes.